You've heard the sound a thousand times, the ticking clock of 60 Minutes, the most successful news magazine show in television history, still on the air more than a half century after it was launched. As it always has, the show still breaks major investigative stories, lands exclusive interviews, and wins awards. But how exactly does the sausage get made? Ira Rosen was for decades one of the show's top producers, responsible for some of its biggest headline-grabbing exposés. He's now written a controversial memoir entitled, appropriately enough, Ticking Clock, Behind the Scenes at 60 Minutes. It's a fascinating account of his experiences in network television that includes blistering upfront and personal portraits of the show's big-name talent, along with personal vignettes of celebrities from Marlon Brando to Tom Brady to Jackie Kennedy he's met along the way. We'll talk to Rosen about his book and about some of the big stories that he got onto the air, as well as a few that didn't on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isgoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined by Ira Rosen, author of Ticking Clock. Ira, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks, guys. So, um, congrats on the book. It's a uh, it's a delicious read uh, filled with uh, lots of fascinating anecdotes. But um, I want to just sort of get your sense to start out of why you wrote this book, because it's a lot about network television, a lot about the news business, but also a lot of uh, personal anecdotes, not all of them flattering about a lot of your former colleagues. So walk us through your thought process in what you wanted to accomplish with this book and what you included and what you did not. Well, I I wanted to do a story from the producer's perspective. Most of the memoirs that have been written over the years, Dan Rather did a book, The Camera Never Blinks. Mike Wallace, I think, has written two memoirs. A lot of the, the correspondents write about the show, but very rarely do you hear it from the producer's perspective. And the producers are the ones who find the stories, write the scripts, find the characters, put it together, do the investigations, and are paid roughly like one twentieth of what the correspondents make if we're lucky. Not that any of you resent that, but go ahead. No, not at all. No, it was, it's it's been a great life. And, and the, when I was lucky enough to begin, it was a kind of a magical period in television news. Uh, It was 1980. Uh, This is the time before the internet. used to find stories or get inspired by stories by what was in the newspapers. And, you know, as I write in the book, you know, one of the things I used to do is I used to do something called airport roulette, where I jump on an airplane and just kind of wander aimlessly around the country, which we had this budget for. And when I got to a town, I'd get all the newspapers, see if there's anything interesting. And if there was, I'd go chase it. And if it wasn't, I would just then get back on the next plane out. And I literally would be hopping plane to plane, almost like, you know, a guy who had an unlimited budget, which I did, uh, an unlimited budget hitchhiker. And by the time I got back to New York two or three days later, I'd have some interesting stories to tell. And 
the book is not a it's not a dish on this person or that person. It's really how you get the story, how you hold the story, how you do investigations. And, you know, it's the chase. It's the thing, you know, you both are so good at and you enjoy. And that's kind of why you got into journalism is kind of why I got into journalism. And I hope the book will inspire people to get into the business and re-inspire people to get back into doing investigative reporting. Well, you know, Ira, there is a ton on the chase and how you actually report these stories. And and that stuff is fascinating. But you also write about these on air, uh, the, t- the talent, you know, cool. who are larger than life personalities and can be pretty difficult. Uh, you write a lot about Mike Wallace um, and uh, our former colleague, Katie Couric and, and many others. You know, um, they're enormously talented gifted on-air personalities, but they often also become divas. There's a ton of backstabbing. Um, they can they abuse their producers, uh, not all of them. I'm generalizing here. And you know, you should tell some of those stories. But to start with, I, I want to sort of understand what is it? What's in the water at network television? Why do they become these kinds of personalities so often? So what my probably, you know, my favorite correspondent to work with was Bill Whitaker. And he's now on 60 Minutes. And when Bill got there, um, I started to sort of explain to him how things work. And he's listening to me. He's not saying very much. And he says, so let me get this right. You find the stories for us. You make us look good. You get the great characters. And uh, you sit in the edit room for days, if not weeks, to put together the best piece. You show the good reverses of me and others. And we're supposed to shit on you for that. Is that kind of the the thinking? I say, yeah, that's, you got it. You haven't been here long. You got it. And and that sort of has been the model. And it's something that producers, uh, just like reporters in a newsroom, when they complain about an editor and, you know, being heavy handed on their copy. I mean, reporters, you know, when the producers get together, they talk about, how these correspondents often treat them. I mean, the story I have in the book, for example, let's start from the beginning. We could move forward. Um, You know, Mike Wallace. Mike Wallace was, you know, and I described him as the Picasso of interviewers. I mean, he knew exactly what button to push to get a reaction out of an individual to drive them crazy. And he was a master at it. The problem is, you know, there was a phrase that said, be careful, Mike Wallace is here. Well, The producers felt that way about him. He was hard charging in your face. If a story's not going right, um, there was one time I was on the road with him on a story and he, the first interview didn't go well and he opens up my briefcase and he starts throwing papers at me and it covers the windshield. We're driving on down I-5 in LA and I couldn't see a thing. And I promised him, oh, Mike, the next interview is going to be great. And we were doing a story about school violence. And the next interview was with a girl who had gotten stabbed in school. And we start doing the interview and the girl's mother is sitting next to her in the car in the interview section. And um, Mike kept trying to lift the girl's shirt to look at the stab wound. And the mother keeps slapping his hand away. And that only empowered Mike to lift it some more. And I said, oh, my God, this is going downhill really fast. And I don't smoke cigarettes, but I grabbed a cigarette from one of the cameramen. I walked outside. I was thinking about what I'm going to do next if I got fired. And uh, 
there were a bunch of kids in the street who noticed the lights and the cameras. And I called them over. I played a hunch. I said, how many people here have gotten stabbed in school and been injured in school? A couple of hands raised. I said, how many people did the stabbing? One hand raised. So I got the kids in a corner. Mike emerges from the interview looking for me and he wanted to fire me right on the spot. So I said to him, why don't you go interview the kids, find out who got stabbed in school, who did the stabbing and follow your instincts. Sure enough, he did it. And when he came to the kid who did the stabbing, he said to him, so you put a knife in the kid's stomach. You felt like a big man. How old are you? He said, 16, 16 years old. You're nothing but a punk. And it was classic Mike Wallace, classic TV. And we got back in the car. We were staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel at the time. We're driving up. And he turned to me and he said, you know, you saved your ass tonight. I said, I know. And that was our entire conversation. That, that, that's how he gave you credit. That was it. And if things didn't go well, you were thrown under the bus and you were blamed. And we had a lot of these scuffles over the years. And as you know, as I, if you will, as I grew up in the business, um, there was enormous pressure to succeed. And the producer was often the person who absorbed the punch if things didn't go well. Um, so, you know, that's sort of, you know, and again, I'm not portray portraying, even though the New York Post headline had it at the time, you know, talented assholes. They're not all talented assholes. I mean, they're, they're just a good chunk of them <laughs> as you portray it. <laughs> no, no, no. But I, I thought you were saying that some of them are assholes and, and not talented. Not talented. <laughs> I'll give you an example. You mentioned Katie Couric, for example. You know, I only did one story with her, and that was we did Hillary Clinton in 2012. And the situation there was she wasn't getting along with the executive producer. So it's not a pleasant situation to come to work every day when the boss hates you. So she kind of, if you will, wasn't always engaged in what was going on at the time. That's not to diminish her as a, you know, a great on-air personality and great on-air talent. Um, but there was, you know, again, as a producer, you're caught in the middle between an executive producer or president of a news division or chairman, whatever his title was at the time, and the anchor. And you are the one who often is the one who penalized. So- what one of the things that fascinated me about the book is, and this is something that um, you can do when you have as big a platform as 60 Minutes, is you spend months cultivating sources, right? Potential interviewers, years, in fact. And um, one that really grabbed me was your relationship with Steve Bannon, who was the campaign chair for Donald Trump in 2016, then was a senior counselor at the White House before he was fired. And you uh, and Bannon went back <laughs> for years. You're exchanging hundreds of text messages with him, all for the purpose of trying to get him to sit for a 60 Minutes interview, which he doesn't do until after he's fired from the White House. Just explain the rationale for spending all that time with the guy. Uh, you must have gotten frustrated along the way because it wasn't leading to immediate payoffs. You know, what did you have in mind when you were cultivating Steve Bannon? Steve, as, as both of you both know, Steve is a big talker, kind of a big gossiper. 
He became a big source for a lot of media people in Washington. And during that period of time that I was with him, he was, I became kind of a therapist. Uh, and I would fly down on Washington on a Saturday night. And at the time, uh, the chief of staff, Priebus, was having a date night with his wife. Jared was observing the Sabbath. So we kind of had that part of the White House to ourselves. So Steve and I would kind of loiter in the chief of staff's office and drink Diet Cokes. He doesn't drink alcohol. And he would just download to me on stories. Now, as a 60 Minutes producer, I'm not on breaking news. I don't need to do the hard news side of things, though he was telling me a lot of major headlines as we were talking. I was listening to him. And then, of course, after I left, I'd go into a bar and, and do extemporaneous notes of our conversations and, if you will, gather string. Then after a while, he didn't want to meet in the White House any longer. We started meeting at the embassy where he lived, and he would be telling me these stories. And the, the point of it is really is to have him trust you, have him get to know you. So ultimately, when he decides to go public, um, he's going to go public on 60 Minutes and tell his story. And there came the day that, um, that he decided to do it. And the White House is putting a lot of pressure on him not to do it. And I got a phone call. You better hurry up over to the embassy. Steve's about to back up. The embassy being Bannon's hangout on Capitol Hill. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I go up there and he says, you know, the people in the White House are telling me that you're going to fuck me. And I said, Steve, I'm not going to fuck you. And he said, all right, that's, that's all I needed to hear. We're good. And that was it. That was our conversation. But it didn't happen after one phone call. It happened after years of talking to him and gathering strings. So when we ultimately had that moment, when we had the interview with Charlie Rose and Steve, it became, and I'm sure both of you had seen it, kind of one of the great classic interviews of the last five or 10 years in politics. You, you talked about being a kind of a therapist. I want to touch just for a second about the sort of tradecraft here. Because sure. you talk about being a therapist and- in terms of cultivating sources, this isn't always the true the, the case. Uh, often, it's not the case. But isn't there an element with a guy like uh, Steve Bannon that you kind of like him, and he kind of likes you, right? I mean, he's a charming guy. He's funny. He's fun to be around with. He's interesting, and it just doesn't work. It, 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 at some level, you have to be both detached. Uh, to do your job, but you also have to be friends in a way. Isn't that true? Totally true. And, and you know, and I've done some of these journalism seminars over the years, which I'm sure you guys have been involved in, and people call it, you know, aren't you betraying the trust? Um, these people become your friends and then you betray them. There's a betrayal involved. Seduced and, and abandoned. Yeah, used and abandoned, exactly. And I don't look at it that way. I mean, we have a job to do. And we're reporters. And we don't, as you know, we don't report everything always that we know. Certainly in a 60 minutes piece, it's, you know, one 60 minutes piece is about 1,200 words. Two is double that. And so you can't get everything you know into it, which is partly the reason I wrote this book, which is there is a lot more in the book. Um, in Bannon's case, um, I would be getting text messages from him. And on certain of them, he would write OTR, off the record. And he would be defining. And of course, those those I maintain the off the record status of it. The others did not have that. 
The others were kind of open. Um, by the way, I didn't regard that what he, a lot of times I knew that what he was telling me, he might've been telling others like Bob Costa, I remember was always over there on a Saturday morning with a, with a cup of coffee and, and, and getting the download from Steve. And I didn't always see, you know, the, the stuff written up in, in uh, the Washington post. So, you know, this is our trade. This is what we do. Um, the advantage of being a 60 minutes producer is you have a longer length of time to listen to these stories and gather them in. And, you know, and I put a lot of them into the book actually. But now. Ira, you, you, you've, you, you break some news in the book uh, about something Bannon had told you that wasn't on 60 minutes and he did right. not share in the 60 minutes interview. And I'll just uh, read a little bit from the book, his criticism of Trump privately to me, took on a different tone. This is after he leaves the White House. He believed Trump was suffering from early stage dementia and that there was a real possibility he would be removed from office by the 25th Amendment, where the cabinet could vote that the president was no longer mentally capable of carrying out his duties. And he even sends you a text. You need to do the 25th Amendment piece. By the way, brother, I never steer you wrong. He's trying to get you to do a story for 60 minutes about Trump and the 25th amendment. And that's not all. He was also meeting with another source of yours, Rebecca Mercer, the big money bags for Bannon and uh, the original Trump campaign as well to recruit her behind a 25th amendment push. Exactly right. Exactly right. He didn't want to talk about it on, on 60 minutes at the time. You can't force the guy, but you know, he he had laid out the record at that time. I mean, this was a period of time when he had great frustrations with Trump. Trump was kind of, you know, throwing him under the bus a little bit in terms of there was a new uh, Time magazine um, uh, portrait of Bannon, uh, of the person who got Trump secretly elected. Uh, and Trump took, you know, took a lot of uh, shit for that particular Time Magazine from his New York friends. And uh, he kind of turned on Bannon and Bannon was a little bit on the outs during this period of time. And uh, Bannon realized that Trump was repeating the same stories over and over again. Uh, there was a David Brooks column that had been written in the New York Times that said the Republican senators went to see Trump uh, in the White House and, and they were hearing him repeat himself, and they realized he may be suffering from early stage dementia. Nevertheless, they gave him a standing ovation. By the way, it was one of my favorite columns. You know, here they're seeing the president in early stage dementia, and they're, they're giving him a, a round of applause. And um, Bannon kept saying this, and he wanted to do something about it. Now, the secret was that Bannon crazily thought that he could be president that he yeah. wanted to run for yeah. himself. Talk about dementia. Uh, exactly. I wanted to follow up on this point, Ira, because, I mean, that's the irony here. Um, you talk about Bannon at one point. I think he goes to see Bob Mercer, uh, Rebecca's uh, right. uh, father, who's the you know the billionaire, uh, who's the right. source of all this money. Yeah. And he's pushing this idea of the 25th Amendment. And, you know, Mercer says he's got his doubts about Bannon. At, some, at one point in the book, you say, uh, that Bannon is living in an alternate reality, it does 
sound like more than that. It sounds like sometimes it sounds like Bannon's lost his marbles that, you know, look, he's a he's a bomb thrower. He's a provocateur. I guess you have to portray Bannon as you have in the book, you know, in all of his, you know, all of his eccentricities, uh, because you do have to wonder how much of this is real and how much of it is is it a show? And then to what extent is it legitimate news versus Bannon just kind of trying to get attention? No, I, I think that's a great question and very observant because that's exactly the the um, the trick in trying to deal with Steve because a lot of it is to draw attention to himself and he loved you know all these articles and he complained about them but he also was the instigator behind most of them um, documentaries that would be done on him you know in his war with Jared and you know and and one of the seminal moments of the whole period of time was he was the major source for Michael Wolff's book. And he was the major source for Bob Woodward's first book on Trump. And then he would complain when they wrote about it. So he'd be feeding them and putting those stories out. I think in Steve's mind, you know, if I had to do the analysis of it, is he would have been very happy to see Trump disappear from the scenes, either through the 25th Amendment, resigning or whatever. And then he would step in and fill that uh, gulf and and um, and and carry the mantle of the Trump followers, but he was delusional about it. And Mercer's realized that and quickly cut off, you know, connections with him. Um, you know, they took him off of Breitbart. Uh, they cut off funding. He said to me in one of my uh, back and forths with him, "Oh, I'll have the support of the Mercers, the Koch brothers, Adelson." I mean, he's, he's going down the sort of the the apparent lists of all the right wing money people. They're not going to support him. You know, in, in, yeah, look, he's a colorful character and and we could joke about him a, a bit. But there's a serious side to this. Dan, Danny called him a bomb thrower. Um, right. And he's an, as you know, an inveterate conspiracy theorist. In fact, uh, as as some of our listeners may recall, uh, Ira participated in the first Conspiracy Land episode in which he shared a, a text from Bannon in which he was encouraging him to go after the Seth Rich story. He said it's a hell of a story. The kid, you know, uh, suggesting that Seth Rich was murdered by the Clintons. That was the conspiracy theory. Of course, it was all nonsense. But it got incredible traction out there. And some might see a sort of direct line from that kind of conspiracy mongering, which Bannon routinely engaged in, no doubt encouraged, you know, Trump to engage in, although Trump didn't need much encouraging, a, a direct line from that to the stop the steal to the events of January 6th. You rile people up with conspiracy theories. And Bannon's been pushing all those conspiracy theories on his radio show, The War Room. And, right. you know, that's really sinister stuff. Right. In one of my first meetings, I mean, he was, the you know, I had never heard the term deep state before I met Steve. And Steve kind of introduced me to it. And, you know, some of the uh, early exchanges we had talked about how Mike Flynn, you know, he's, he was put on, if you guys remember, and I'm sure you do, he was put on the National Security Council. And, um, and I said, what are you doing on the National Security Council? And he said, I'm there to keep an eye on Flynn to make sure he doesn't start World War III. 
I mean, this is really I have to say, yes. <laughs> how we should all feel comforted. <laughs> and he was telling me how the the Obama team, um, Ben Rhodes and, and Susan Rice were selecting targets of drone strikes. And we got all the pictures here. And I mean, he was really heavy duty, deep state guy before that term became kind of, you know, passe. But the, here's the thing I keep returning to. He was selected as probably the top next to Jared as the most important person inside that White House for the first year of Trump's term. He had enormous influence over him. He shaped the agenda. You know, his probably his biggest influence over Trump during that period of time was was getting Trump to withdraw from the Paris Accords, uh, which he told it to me in, in great length and how he manipulated that and how he outmaneuvered Jared and uh, Jared was trying to get, you know, all these titans of industry to talk Trump into into doing it and and how Bannon maneuvered uh, people. And uh, he regarded that as one of his great victories. But, you know, listen, at the same time, you know, he he tells me one story in the book, which which I, I whenever I need a laugh, I go look at it, which is when Trump met the pope. Trump talks like a gangster sometimes, you know, and it's part of his roots in New York. It's part of being a builder in New York. And he dealt with a lot of these organized crime figures in order to build his buildings. So the meeting with the Pope, I mean, so he, this is Bannon telling the story from Trump's side. He says, and, and we could use the F word on this show. Yes, we can. Yeah, it's encouraged. So he says, this is Bannon mimicking Trump. So I'm meeting with the fucking Pope and he's posing there for pictures. And first of all, he gives me a book about the environment. What the fuck do I need a book about the environment for? Now we're standing around doing pictures. And I got Melania to my left. I got the Pope here to my right. And Ivanka's on the other side of the Pope. Melania's all pissed off. She said, why, why is Ivanka getting that side of the Pope? I want that side of the Pope. She's Jewish. And so Melania, and that part, this part came out during that period of time. Melania says, I'm a Catholic. And he's like, oh, my God. Now I got Melania screaming, I'm a Catholic. I got Ivanka on the other side of it. What the hell am I supposed to do here? Meanwhile, the Pope refuses to smile. Now we go off to NATO headquarters. And at NATO headquarters, I walk into the fucking building and it's made out of glass. And I turn to somebody and I said, isn't this building supposed to withstand World War III? a nuclear strike, I could take this place out with a hand grenade. And so <laughs> and so this is stuff that people don't get about Trump. Okay, now, all right. Now that leads into, uh, there are three uh, delicious anecdotes I want you to tell from the book. Uh, one involves Melania, not directly, but at a party given by the aforementioned Rebecca Mercer, you meet a certain lawyer named Bob Cohn, who right. tells you something interesting about Melania? Yeah, so I'm at I'm at a uh, party, and uh, Bob Cohn introduces himself to me, and uh, he's a prominent divorce lawyer in New York, and he says that he was the uh, attorney for uh, I, I guess Ivanka, uh, and um, and I said, well, you know, what are you doing now? He said, I represent uh, Melania. And I said, well, Melania's not the person. And he said, well, I got her a post-nup. I said, I don't know. He's, I don't know what a post-nup is. He said, well, you know what a prenup is? I said, sure. Post-nup is after you have a prenup, you get a post-nup, which is Trump felt that he says, I can't be president 
uh, without a first lady. And I and he renegotiated her a prenup deal to give her essentially four more years on her her deal. Um, so <laughs> he was proud. He got her. He said, I got her millions more added to her prenup. OK, that's anecdote number one. Anecdote number two uh, from Dylan Howard and the tour he gets of the White House by Trump uh, while Trump is president. So Trump is uh, Dylan Howard is from the National Enquirer and was responsible for some of the biggest National Enquirer stories that Trump wanted to see in the National Enquirer and also arranged for the payments to Stormy Daniels and Playboy Playmate Karen McDougal to keep them quiet. Right. You know, he so they had a meeting uh, at the White House at dinner uh, with him and his boss, uh, David Pecker. And uh, they're getting a bit of a tour. And he says, I've been good for business editor, man. And he said, you certainly have. And then he brings up uh, McDougal and he asks, does she still love him? Yes, she does. Um, I think that was, frankly, you know, Howard just talking a little bit. And then uh, Trump volunteers and says, you know what my nickname for her was? And he says, what? And he said, the Hoover Dam. And he says, and he says, OK, I'll bite. Why the Hoover Dam? He said, because she was always so wet. And he kind of laughs, apparently. Um, so this is Trump telling this to Howard, according to what Howard tells Howard you. relays and stuff. And, you know, I don't know if it's true or not. It's just what, you know, he had he had said. He said it. To, he said it to a few people. Um, and, you know, if this is uh, Trump's idea of a joke or whatever. But, you know, he did say this, according to Howard. Um, all right. That's a secondhand account from Dylan Howard. First account, firsthand to you, but secondhand right. from right. Trump. But there's a firsthand account that you could speak to that's in the book about your experiences with Ghislaine Maxwell. <laughs> that I absolutely could speak about. You may have to use the F word again. Ghislaine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maxwell, it was the aide de camp to Jeffrey Epstein and has been accused of procuring underaged women for uh, Epstein over many years. And she's currently under federal indictment. Yeah, I don't want this 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 uh, this podcast to sound like a Larry Flint obit, but okay, <laughs> here I go. Um, so I'm at a book party and I meet with Jislaine uh, Maxwell. I, I see her. I'm introduced to her. We chat a little bit. She asks about sixty minutes. Um, she says, "Can you give me a lift home?" I said, "Sure." You know, and again, I didn't I, I didn't have an awareness of who she was. Uh, I wasn't certainly doing that story. I didn't know much about it. I get in the car with her and um, we try drop her off at her townhouse. And she says, um, if you come in and fuck me, I will tell you the secrets of my father. You know, I've, I, you know, I was needless to say, I'm still speechless years later in, in thinking about it and talking about that story. And um, immediately as a reporter, I'm saying her father, Robert, Robert Maxwell, the press baron, supposedly an agent for the Mossad helped build their nuclear facility and bomb killed or, you know, in his boat, you know, a million things to go in mind, but of course I'm not going to take her up on her offer. And I had to figure out a way to get out of it, but uh, I was sort of blown away. So I, I made up some ridiculous excuse and I said, well, my dog is home alone for the last five hours and I need to go back and deal with my dog. 
uh, what a generous offer. Let me get a rain check. And she knew I was full of shit. And so she gave me a little kiss on the cheek and, and we left. A few months later, you know, it's 2016. The election is, is full rage. I call her up and I said, let's go get a drink. And she thought I was a, it was a follow-up to her previous offer to me. And um, we get a drink and um, I say, I want the tapes. And she knew exactly what I was talking about. She said, I don't know where he keeps them. Talking about Jeffrey Epstein uh, and the tapes uh, that I was after, which was allegedly of Donald Trump with underage women. And she doesn't sort of, you know, engage. She she doesn't say she saw them or whatever. And uh, I'm pushing it. And I said, you got to do this, man. The fate of the world is at stake here. And she puts a finger in my face and she says, Ira, I'm the daughter of a press baron. I know the way you people think. If you do one side, you have to do both sides, meaning that if you do Trump, you have to do Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton was supposedly on the Lolita Express, the Epstein jet. Not supposedly, uh, he was. We know. It's, there are records showing he took multiple trips. Multiple trips on this plane, and one of the trips included a woman who gave massages, supposedly, uh, it was known. And so I said, fine, you give me the tapes of both sides, I'll report both sides. I'm not after one and another. And I think what she felt was that at that point in time, Hillary was way ahead. She wanted uh, Hillary to win the election. She didn't want to mess up and try to push for it. And so I don't think she did very much to try to get the tapes for me. The most interesting thing, actually, she said that night, she was talking about Epstein, and she said that he's into uh, cryogenics, and he wanted to live forever. And um, she was telling me how he traveled the world to try to figure out ways to live forever and and all that. So when he supposedly killed himself, um, it became apparent to me is why is somebody, somebody killing themselves who had just been trying to spend most of his time trying to live forever? Um, well, mainly because he knew he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison and uh, didn't relish yeah, the prospect. He had gotten out of it before. He had, you know, he'd beaten it down in Florida and, you know, he, he could hire every lawyer. Well, wait a second. Are you suggesting that you don't believe he killed himself? I don't believe he killed himself. Really? Yes. So you believe he was murdered? I believe that he was taken out. I do. That's what my belief. Uh, there was a uh, car, independent no car. No wonder you got along with Bannon so well. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there was an independent coroner who who kind of looked at it and and. Um, oh, no, nah, come on, independent. That coroner was hired by the uh, defense team for Epstein. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm, anyway. <laughs> All right. So going further back in mafia history. You got an interview with Joe Bonanno, Joe Bananas, as he was called, who was the head of one of the five New York mafia families and a member of the commission. And you met with him in Arizona after, I guess, he'd been pushed out of the, of the mafia, retired. How did you uh, get that interview uh, and, uh, and tell us about uh, what that was like? Well, um, Joe Bonanno had, at that point in time, written a book, Man of Honor. And he was going to only do one interview, and, and obviously he chose 60 Minutes. So I flew down to Tucson to meet with him, and I began a negotiation with his lawyer about what actually he could say on camera. And it was one of the strangest negotiations I'd ever been around. It was literally like, okay, I want him to talk about contract hits. No, no, I can't talk about that. 
I said, I want him to talk about uh, control of the unions. All right, that he can talk about. I, and and so we went through this list and the lawyer is saying can and I'm, I'm arguing. I said, come on, man, you're not giving me anything. So he said, all right, he'll talk about the commission, which had never been talked about before, certainly by by never by a man who actually sat on the mafia commission. And so we we did this interview with Mike Wallace. And, you know, it's one of the interviews, looking back, that I'm most proud of in my career um, because it really broke ground. Later after it aired, uh, Rudy Giuliani, who was the um, U.S. attorney in New York, looked at that and built thought of doing the commission case. If you guys remember, it was against the five sitting members of the commission. And he did that based on what Joe Bonanno told us on 60 Minutes. And to this day, I I have the little drawing that Bill Bonanno, his son, drew for me of the five families. And and Giuliani at one point tried to subpoena it. And I told Rudy, stop it. Just stop it. You're not getting it. Anyway, so afterwards, Joe and I go out on the back porch. Mike Wallace is on his way to the airport. The tension of the day is over with. We're drinking a cognac. And um, I ask him, um, you know, I said, Joe, you know, growing up as a kid in New York, I admired Sandy Koufax and Meyer Lansky. Both were kind of successful in this, you know, in these tough worlds to be successful in. As Jews, by the way, right? Both of them. Totally. And and, well, that's why I kind of of admired them. You know, they're inspirational. And um, so I said, you know, what is it with Lansky? And he said, Lansky had the picture. I said, what? He said, he looked at me like I'm an idiot. Lansky had the picture of J. Edgar Hoover and Clyde Tolson having sex together. And I had never heard of this before. I didn't know what he was talking about. But apparently what Lansky got a hold of was the picture and then let Hoover know about that. He had the picture. And if you guys know, for years, the FBI denied that the mafia ever existed. But he had always he never had FBI agents chasing the mafia, Italian mafia, never pursued that. Uh, they were chasing communists. Uh, the mafia had free free run of it. And according to Joe Bonanno, it was because Lansky had the blackmail picture over him. So the uh, the blackmail picture of Hoover and Tolson, the tapes of Clinton and Trump with Jeffrey Epstein's women. Um, there There's are a, a lot of here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of tantalizing almosts here. But let's talk about um, one that you did, which was a big story um, that will also lead to um, one of the last chapters in the book about uh, some of the problems uh, people, folks at 60 Minutes had and the opioid story for which you won many awards in collaboration with the Washington Post. Right. I I, I have been uh, wanting to collaborate. I, I had had a collaboration in an early edition with uh, the Washington Post and it was very successful. And I approached them again about doing another one. And um, uh, we discussed it and we settled on the opiate epidemic to kind of look at it. And I was lucky enough to work with Scott Hyam and uh, Lenny Bernstein, who are two fantastic reporters at The Post. And it was it was the best collaboration you could ask for because every one of us brought specific talent to the table. Lenny had kind of an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, of the epidemic. Scott is a kind of a real dogged uh, investigative producer, uh, reporter, uh, and he had this guy, Joe Renazizi, who was uh, a key figure inside the DEA, who was forced out 
and who agreed to go on camera. Uh, Whitaker was fantastic interviewer. And so we collaborated on the story that that made enormous news. It was a piece of legislation that was kind of making its way through Congress. And uh, it was going to neuter the DEA and basically take away all their powers. And Congressman Marino had kind of authored this thing, pushed it forward, and it resulted in a legislation that did neuter the DEA. And the last line of our story that night was President Trump had just appointed Marino to be drug czar. Um, The reaction was kind of over the moon. Schumer took to the floor of the Senate saying it's like, the fox guarding the chicken coop. And within two days of the story airing, Marino's name was taken off from being named as drug czar. So the story had an enormous impact, not just in getting Marino to resign, but also maybe taking a look at how do you enforce efforts against the opiate industry in the uh, in the war on drugs. So after you do the story, collaborating with the Washington Post, you discover that Washington Post reporters are investigating your boss at 60 Minutes, Jeff Fager. Well, no, I didn't discover that at first. What I discovered they would say was that they were investigating Charlie Rose. Right. Okay. Um, and so they their first stories really were uh, with Charlie Rose. Who was who had the Charlie Rose show, but was also a... A contributor to 60 Minutes. And this was Rose being a serial sexual harasser of women who right. he worked with. Um, right. And then they start looking at Fager. Right. What happened? Uh, they start investigating Fager and they go down that road. And at one point in time, I ended up calling up uh, Marty Barron at the Post, uh, who is the editor of the Washington Post. And uh, I said, you know, just check your sources, check your documents, make sure this is accurate. Uh, I know you will. Uh, and in the end, the Post ended up not writing anything about uh, about Jeff. But Jeff Fager does get fired after he sends a text to a CBS reporter, one of his colleagues, who's looking into the allegations about Fager mistreating women that were later published by The New Yorker. And Fager writes a rather abusive text to the reporter saying, there are people that have lost their jobs trying to harm me. Right. Sounds like a threat. Yes. Uh, I think every single day that Jeff wakes up, he regrets that text he sent. It was wrong. He didn't. He lost the support of people who were supporting him inside after sending that text. But Ira, the arc of your career at 60 Minutes shows how some of that kind of conduct was very much tolerated uh, in the early days, right? Because you write about Mike Wallace – who was, uh, I mean, you, you say he was, uh, it was like, uh, he was like a madman character, right? I mean, right. he's he's grabbing women's breasts and their behinds. He's asking them if it's that time of the month. Uh, and not just sexual misconduct, because there's also, you write about a producer and an editor who are working on a, uh, you know, I guess a, an investigation of a publicly held company. They know that once it airs, it's going to affect the stock price, and yet they short the stock. People find out about it, and they're just suspended for two weeks. They're not fired for that kind of conduct. That Those mores shifted pretty dramatically uh, over the course of your career. 
Right. I mean, that that particular story you just talked about was maybe 40 years ago. And, um, you know, I was kind of when I when I saw it happen and and go down, I was bothered by it because anybody who does investigations, you know, has to be totally pure about it. And um, it was unfortunate the way they reacted to it. So we should say, I mean, you did get nicked in an internal investigation. Now, the uh, uh, the Washington Post didn't think that the specific allegations about you met their standards. So I'm not going to go into all of them. But there's one that you do include in the book in which uh, they say that you encouraged women to use their sex appeal to secure information from sources. This was the CBS internal investigation done by an outside law firm. And that was based, appears to be based largely on a lecture that you had given back in 2012 at the Investigative Reporters and Editors Conference. What you said then is that you reporters should be charming, make themselves an interesting person, show emotions so people will know you care about their plight. And flirting is a tool in a journalist toolbox to use something I witnessed Mike Wallace and others use to great effectiveness. Right. I'm guessing that was back in 2012. I want you to explain what you're talking about. And also, I'm guessing you would not give the same lecture today. I would obviously not give that same lecture today. Um, Times have changed. Um, I was probably, I was, not probably, I was too glib about it. Um, It was something, um, in fact, you know, I told this is something I said to to male male associate producers, female associate producers. It was in my effort to kind of instruct them into teaching them about source making. It was an it was an unfortunate choice of words, and I would not use flirting. It was not I never use sex appeal. It would always it was always the word flirting, and that's the word I use. But this and does that, get to the issue that. Danny was talking about earlier about, you know, we in journalism cultivate sources. We want them to trust us. We want them to like us and that can build to trust. But I guess I know where you're going, Mike. I guess the way of of, of asking this question is, Ira, were you flirting with Steve Bannon? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) But it gets to, you know, the uh, ethical dilemma we all are uh, experience uh, uh, in our careers about, you know, are we misleading the people we are trying to get to cooperate and effectively using them? Right. And I think that's a great question. And, you know, you guys are of significant age, like me, in a sense, that used to remember the Fred Friendly roundtables. Yep. And um, there used to be these great Fred Friendly roundtables about the seduction of a source. Is There was one of them back in the day, is whether you're trying to build this seductive relationship between a source. And again, this is way before Me Too and stuff. And I don't even think the great Fred Friendly uh, roundtables would be using those kind of words before. But it's, it is that kind of thing that we dance around. Uh, we want to be liked. You know, I used to say when I, when I gave that lecture is remember people's birthdays. Don't call somebody up when you only want something from them. Call them up to tell them a joke. Uh, pass along a little gossip. I remember sitting in, you know, various U.S. attorney's offices when a reporter would call and you could see the body language gets tight. The muscles tighten up. 
you know, and I said, oh boy, I don't want to be that person calling. I want, you know, when they hear me, they want to take the call because I was going to pass along some, you know, joke or something funny or, or wish me happy birthday. And that's part of the source. Is there, is there a, um, a relationship you're building? Absolutely. People, everybody here remember the Janet Malcolm book, the, uh, the murderer and the journalist. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read just the first sentence of that book. Every journalist who is not too stupid or full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is a kind of confidence man preying on people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness, gaining their trust, and betraying them without remorse. <laughs> it's a little over the top, maybe. <laughs> but but hey, our that, profession, <laughs> this is the business we have chosen. <laughs> right. I actually gave a... Um, a, um, you know, a, a lecture with Barry Sheck, the lawyer from the Innocence Project in Hawaii at the University of Hawaii, where that was an entire three hour session. I mean, this is things we wrestle with. You guys wrestle with it. I wrestle with it. Uh, my meetings with John Gotti, uh, my meetings with Steve Bannon, um, these were long meetings. Did they like me? Maybe. There is a, um, a dance we play with people. Um, to get them to give us information to people just don't give information because you, they like your last name. It's, it's, it's your body of work. It's the fact that you haven't burned people. It may be the outlet you have and the, the, the power of the outlet you have. Certainly that was the case in 60 minutes. And um, so, you know, that's what we do. There, there is this dance to get them to give us information, and that's kind of our job. Well, anybody uh, wanting insight into how it works um, can't do better than to read Ira's book, Ticking Clock, Behind the Scenes at 60 Minutes. Ira Rosen, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Ira. Thanks for the time. Sure. 